Magna is an impressively diversified auto supplier that is growing at double-digit rates. On this week's show, CEO Don Walker talks about Magna's involvement in ride-hailing, autonomy, and electrification. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most interesting automotive supplier companies, Magna International, a $40 billion company that's growing at double-digit rates. You're going to find out why it is such an interesting company because our special guest today is Don Walker, the CEO of Magna International. And Don, it is great to have you on the show with us. It's my pleasure to be here. Also joining us today are Joe White from Reuters and Drew Winter from Wards. And good to have the both of you guys here, too. Don, one of the things I find so interesting about Magna is you're a contract manufacturer. You make cars for car companies, including Mercedes, BMW, Toyota, Jaguar, at your plant in Austria, the Magna Steyr plant. But if I understand this right, you're also going to be building cars in China for the Beijing Automotive Industry Corporation. And there's rumors out there, too, that you might have a plant in the U.S. for one of these EVs, electric vehicle startups, eVelocity. And let's just start out talking. What is your plan here? I mean, what's the strategy behind being the only supplier in the world that makes cars for car companies? Well, it's one of our business units. We have a number of different business units, and it's, uh, we bought a company called uh, Steyr a number of years ago for a lot of reasons. One, they were very good in powertrain, uh, and they are very good in engineering. So, yes, we do make uh, vehicles for others under contract, but what the really interesting part of the business, in my opinion, is they can engineer a complete vehicle. And when we say an engineer of a complete vehicle, it's to help design the vehicle, program manage it, launch it, look at the supplier, look at the logistics, bring it all together, and we have a very flexible assembly plant. So as an example for uh, JLR, we have the electric vehicle and the internal combustion engine going down the same line with the same tack time. So uh, a lot of capability, but it's really the engineering and understanding complete vehicles and complete systems as we look at a full drivetrain or uh, the electronics of a vehicle that really helps. So, so Don, are you, are you, do you have the capability now um, and it seems like you might. Um, if a company, startup company in, say, China, or I know you're working, or I believe you've been working with VinFast, the Vietnamese company, you have a real, just a, a real startup, and all they've got is a concept and a business model. They do not have a car, they do, and they do not have an assembly plan. Are you basically able to put them in business? Are you, do you, what, what pieces are you missing? Uh, well, yes, we can. We can design a complete vehicle. I would say, uh, for the most part, if we're doing it for our traditional companies like BMW, BMW is a, or, or JLR, they will design it and they'll say, this is what we want to do for electronics architecture and here's our building materials. It, it's a lot easier to work with them to engineer a vehicle, but we have uh, engineered complete vehicles. If you're starting with a brand new company, uh, it's much more difficult than most people understand. The car makers completely get it. Uh, but we can do it, but it's very difficult to come up with um, a competitive vehicle unless you have some building blocks already there, specifically in the bill material. But we can do it, yes, mm-hmm. and we have. So Magna has a lot of different divisions and all sorts of stuff. Is it How big a piece is the uh, manufacturing of vehicles, and what's your, what are your most pop, uh, profitable business units? 
Well, it's not, as sales, it's relatively, uh, you know, it's reasonable size. It's about $5.5 5 to $6 billion out of the $41 billion, but that's because we count the sale of the, the selling price of the vehicle. It's number of people, it's relatively small in Magnus, so it's not a big part of our business. The engineering part's the, the important part of the business. Uh, we don't talk about profitability necessarily by, by segment, although we just uh, changed how we report. So we have four big uh, sections. One is the complete vehicle, one seating, one is the body and, and structures, exteriors of vehicle, and one is our powertrain, electronics, and our mechatronics. And that's the area, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's about $12 billion of our sales, but we also have about $4 billion of joint ventures we manage in there. But that's the unit that has most of our software capability. That's why we put it all together to try and optimize the software. But they're, they're all standalone businesses that they don't hit their return on invested capital. Uh, then they're, you know, we wouldn't keep funding them, and so they're all, all good return businesses. So let's go back to the, the contract manufacturing. You've got this big plant in Austria. You've announced that you're going to build a plant in China, and then there's this, these reports out there that eVelocity is looking for Magna to build cars for it in the U.S. Is that what's going to happen? Well, we have a full-size assembly plant, very well established. It's made three and a half million vehicles in Austria. We just built an addition, uh, additional paint shop in uh, Slovenia, which is not far away because we were going to be running out of paint capacity. In China, very short explanation is we've got uh, BAIC has a subsidiary that makes electric vehicles. So we are working with them to design future vehicles. Uh, that's a joint venture, and then we've also bought into a joint venture with them one of their assembly plants. So it's already got the land, it's got the building, uh, paint shop, they're already making vehicles there so we can expand it. But that will be to build the vehicles that are being engineered, which will be electric vehicles, and we can also put other contract vehicles in that plant when they'd like to see us do that as well to fully utilize it. So we'll have the capability. As far as North America, it's a bit like a chicken and the egg. If we had an assembly plant here, I believe we'd be getting lots of orders because we have lots of people talking to us. But it's a big capital investment and you have to have long term. So we never talk, uh, never say publicly who we're talking to, obviously. But there is interest and I think there's a long term a viable business model to make vehicles under contract for other people, but we don't have anything presently here. Do you, so as you, you have an, a publicly announced partnership with, with Lyft, which just, uh, you know, just success, very successfully launched their IPO uh, and raising capital, and they've got a pretty stout valuation. Um, to the extent that you can, I mean, where do you see the relationship with Lyft going? Where do you see your relationship with ride-hailing companies globally going? Because again, there's been lots of talk. Didi, for instance, has been very open about saying we would like to have somebody design us a car that's purpose-built for our kind of work. Um, talk about that. I mean, how big an opportunity is that segment or that sector for you? Well, I think the ride-hailing business is huge and getting bigger. So congratulations to Logan Green on getting it because I just understand he priced last night. And we have an equity position there, as many other people do. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to see they were successful. The reason we got in the, in the relationship with Lyft was we already have a lot of capability when it comes to cameras, surround view. We're launching a brand new, which we think is going to be a leapfrog technology and radar. And we're, uh, we just got a contract we're working on now with a German OEM to, to um, bring to market uh, an advanced solid-state LiDAR. So the sensors, the sensor fusion, the brains, we, we are working on that for levels one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. we, it's very expensive work on level four or five. That's where we got in a relationship with Lyft, and we're co-developing some technology, and I won't go in, don't have time to get into all the details, but we would make the, 
the, uh, the components and engineered the vehicles for it, but we're co-developing. Uh, I, I personally think we're going to see a big fallout within the people that are working on L4 and L5 because I think fully autonomous vehicles are way out there. I gave a speech about three years ago up in Traverse City where I gave my, my predictions. Everybody said, you're way too conservative and the numbers are just about dead on. Uh, so it's very complicated. A lot of money is going into it. It's a very important business unit for us. We're spending a lot of R&D money on the electrification, the powertrain, and, and the assisted driving features. And we're working with Lyft on L4, L5. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the Wild West out there right now. What sensors are going to win? Who's got the best technology? Everybody's spending lots of money. I think we're going to see some consolidation, some cooperation, and people will be working on technologies to get higher volume and lower R&D costs because right now the industry is uh, not seen as being very efficient with, uh, with capital. And this is an example where, where the investment community is probably right. There'd be a lot better, more efficient ways to bring products to market. Can I just follow up on that? I mean, do you see Ford Magna building sort of purpose-built ride-hailing vehicles as a, as a business that's realistic for you, one that you, you, you're looking at going into? We could, uh, and I think depends on what's required from a crash in, in the you know, 15, 20 years from now, if you, you need to have meet crash or not. If you need to meet crash, then we could certainly build a vehicle. It could be a purpose-built vehicle. Uh, a ride-hailing company could also go to one of the existing car makers and say, look, I want to use your platform, or I want to use it, but something a little bit different, and Magnet can do the, the modifications to put their technology in the vehicle. Uh, it was announced what we're doing with Waymo. We're going to be basically I'll let them announce what they what they want to talk about. But they, they have talked about us taking vehicles, the Pacifica, and right. basically putting their SDS system in there, so modifying the vehicles. But if you think you know the logical extension is who designs that, uh, who can do it from a production standpoint, we have all that capability. So um, last winter you introduced a really inter an interesting seating concept that for autonomous cars that allows uh, the seats to move around and basically turn vehicles into different types of vehicles for whatever purpose. Uh, it was a really interesting um, a demo you put out and everything else. Um, you chose to introduce it really uh, at the giant consumer electronics show rather than more typical venues like an auto show or, or something like that. What, what was your rationale for that? Well, we started going to the consumer electronics show in Vegas about four years ago. And the reason we did was we started with a small booth is because we're doing so much in the autonomous driving features, like the new technologies, there's a lot of VC companies we've been investigating with, a lot of startup companies that go there. Uh, the first year I went there, we had a lot of different meetings. We're also attracting people. So it's a good area if you're really involved in the bleeding edge of the advanced technologies, especially as it, as it pertains to uh, assisted driving, autonomous driving. The reason we show, we, so we already had a booth there. We already are showing a lot of electronics. Uh, the reason we put the seat there was uh, more for interest and attraction. There's a lot of people interested in it. And people said, well, you know, why would you show it? Because somebody can copy you. Well, the real secret sauce in that is not in how do you configure it, uh, a seat to move around. It's, it's in the metals. It's in the structures. It's how you, uh, it's, it's all the mechanisms, which is a really complicated thing that's in there to do it. We're really good at that. So we didn't mind showing it. You know, interesting concept for future vehicles, but we're really not showing the secret sauce because it's all, all things you can't see. But the consumer electronics show is, is taking off, and it's, uh, I think a lot of what you see out there, quite frankly, is hype. And a lot of people there, are, for marketing purposes, we're there to make connections and talk to some customers more about the, the, uh, the software electronics in the vehicle. 
Don, a lot of uh, suppliers exhibit at CES because they want to be portrayed or portray themselves as high-tech electronic companies, not low-growth old automotive ones. Um, you're doing a lot of interesting things, but your multiples still are no, they're, they're industry average. I think if, if I looked it up, you're trading at about seven and a half times earnings, which is about half the S&P rate. You recently got downgraded by Morgan Stanley and BMO. What's it take for a supplier to say, look at all this cool stuff and the future looks bright and that should be reflected in the stock price? You just said it all. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody thinks their stock price is low, and we do as well. I, th I think what we need to do is just continue to educate the investment community on what we're doing because we're not even. If you look at body technology, people say, "Well, that's that's old." That is not old technology. It's ex extremely difficult, lightweight, low materials, new joining. Everything is very complicated now. Uh, I think people see the electronics as 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 the real sexy thing. So one of the things we've been doing is. Uh, is showing our technology. We didn't used to do that, so we're doing that more and more. But I think the industry right now is, is at low multiples because people are worried about, is there going to be a downturn? Uh, what's going to happen with trade? What's going to happen with tariffs? Right now, the tariffs uh, that, are, that, that have been applied to steel and aluminum are really costing the, the manufacturing industry in North America, especially the U.S., really hurting the, 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 the margins and, and hitting the profitability. So. I hope that goes away with the new USMC. Well, whether the, U the USMCA comes around or not, the tariffs, I understand the concept, but having tariffs within NAFTA is really hurting the industry that everybody's trying to, to protect. So I think you know, there's a number of things. Is China volume going to uh, stay down or not? We're not huge in China. We have over 30,000 people there, but some percentage of our sales is not huge. So there's a number of different factors. I think we need to get through the cycle. I think we just have to hit our numbers. Uh, I think we've got a great company, we've got a lot of growth, we've got a lot of exciting technologies, but we have been spending a lot of money on the new technologies, and we've said publicly how many, hundreds of millions of dollars in R&D. It does hurt your short-term earnings, and we just have to show the, uh, the, the street that, or, you know, that will yield some growth and profitability. But um, I think we're one of the best manufacturers out there. I think we've got a lot of great innovations. I think you just gotta keep on, keep your nose to the grindstone, and hopefully it, it comes around. Don, can I come back to the point about trade? Um, and you, you know, your company does a, a, does a lot of products in aluminum, does a lot of products in steel. Um, talk about how the steel and aluminum tariffs are affecting you. I mean, and are they affecting you in the sense that you've been had you've had to take a cut in your margins to absorb that, or are you passing it along to your customers? I mean, explain a little bit more about the dynamic there, because it seems like those tariffs are, are, are pretty sticky. They're not going away anytime soon. Well, I hope they do go away, but uh, it, it's a bit of a complicated calculation. So really quickly, uh, steel and aluminum, mainly between Canada and the U.S., let's say, and there's a bit from Europe and also some of the trade from China. But if you look at steel and aluminum particularly, uh, what we're buying in Canada, and we're, we're, we're the biggest supplier in North America by a long shot. We're the third biggest in the world, but we're the biggest in North America. Uh, so we have some offsets and we have some pass through the customer and, we, and we'll have the discussions. What's really hurting us is as we bring steel into the U.S., there's no offset to that. You can apply for a uh, pretty complicated process to try and get relief on that, but it's, very, it's pretty cumbersome and, and it's not that successful, quite frankly. So um, it's actually hurting the profitability of our U.S.-based plants more than anything else. Uh, and I, I think the administration understands that, but I hope they'll do something with it. I think initially it was to support the steel industry. I think this, uh, 
personal opinion, the steel industry has taken advantage of this, taken advantage of the people who are trying to help them, because as soon as they put the tariffs in, all steel prices went up. And not just Canadian steel, yeah. right. Very magic. Just happened to be, you know, that, that, that it's a bit frustrating. Uh, it's really hurting the, the car companies. They've been public about that. It's hurting the supply base. So I, I think if the intent is to protect an industry, I understand that, but it, they have to be reasonable, and I think they have to roll this back, or you, it'll eventually going to hurt jobs in the U.S. more than anywhere else. Have you shifted any investment decisions yet as a result of that, or are you kind of trying to, well, we, just to leave it we, there, have you shifted yeah, investment decisions? We, we've changed a few sourcing in other areas of the world that are coming back in to, to, uh, to minimize the impact of, uh, of, of tariffs. We really haven't done too much in North America because I think it's going to go away because once you move something, it, it, it's hard, it's expensive, and it, it, so you really have to take a long view of this. I think it's going to turn around. Logic would say you get rid of it within North America. It doesn't make any sense. If you're trying to raise a standard of living for a country or a region and you hurt manufacturing, you're doing the exact opposite. So I think it will go away. It has to go away or else, or else it's going to have a, a negative effect long term. So electrification, you've got these mega trends going on like electrification and autonomy and which you are, are, are a bit skeptical of the timelines and whatnot. Um, how different do you think Magna will look in, in, say, five years down the road? Is it going to look much different than now or uh, because of some of these megatrends going on or is that still way down the road? Not in five years. I, I, so I think assisted driving levels one, two, and three is coming fast. There's a huge consumer pull for that. People want safer. So I, we're heavily focused on level one, two, and three. But automotive cycles are, as you know, three to yeah. five years. And so nothing dramatically changes. I think level four, level five in any volume is a long way off. I think the penetration rates of pure electric vehicles will go up. There's a whole bunch of levers, legislation, gas prices. You get a license plate doing it, and you know, mega city rules. There's a lot of things, but I do think the, the technology and the cost for electric vehicles is such that um, you're going to see pretty fast penetration of pure electric vehicles. Pretty fast is all relative. We still think by 2025 globally, you're only about 4 to 6 percent of, of electric vehicles. Probably growing between electric and, and uh, PHEV globally to probably 25% in 2030. But the penetration rates are drastically different between China, North America, and Europe, and the solutions are different as well. So we believe they're coming, um, other than fully autonomous vehicles. Uh, we're invested heavily in it, but not much changes in our business model between now and five years from now. You know, 15 years from now, it will it'll change. Don, building on what Drew just said, are you worried as a supplier the commitments that OEMs are making to EVs? You know, uh, in about two to three years' time in the U.S. market alone, we'll go from roughly a dozen electric car models to, depending on who you believe, what they say they're going to introduce, anywhere from 80 to 120 in two to three years' time. I don't see the market demand for that. I've got to believe that you're trying to protect yourself and not putting in the manufacturing capacity for a market that may not emerge in that time frame? It, it's a great question. And that's why we spend so much time trying to get it right. It doesn't really matter to us how fast it moves, quite frankly, although we're, we're spending a lot of R&D money, so probably the faster it moves, it's, to the extent that we, have, uh, we get contracts, the better. But you really have to get the volume right. So if you quote for a million vehicles and it turns out to be 250,000, you can't amortize your engineering or your, or your capital. Uh, you know, I, I, when somebody says they're going to, 
going to uh, produce a certain number of electric vehicles. I think the first question to ask is, how do you define electric vehicle? Is it an electric vehicle? Is it a PHEV? Is it a hybrid? Is it a micro-hybrid? Uh, so that can be a bit confusing. And I also think, you know, if I was uh, running a brand, I'm not running a brand, I'm running a B2B company. If I was running a brand, you want to be on the leaning edge of saying, I'm going to be fully electrified, I'm going to be fully autonomous. Uh, and I'm not saying they're not moving that way. But we have, to, we have to break it down and say, okay, practically, what's the market demand? What are the market drivers? Uh, what's the volume going to be to know what products uh, we, we want to sell? So it doesn't matter to us really how fast it penetrates. What matters to us is we get the volumes right. As you're trying to figure that out, I mean, what, what signals are you trying to tune into? Because, you know, as a, as a journalist, you know, one day I'm hearing industry executives saying, we're all in on EVs. It's like, oh, that's great. And then you look at the actual sales of EVs and, and, and the minute subsidies are withdrawn or, or diminished in a given market, <laughs> the, the sales yeah. go down. Yeah. And, and it, just, it just seems like the consumers are pretty shrewd. They do the calculation in their head of, you know, what am I getting back for this? And the minute it doesn't work, they're out. So I'm just I'm interested because you, I get your point. You've got to get this right or, or it's bad for your business. I mean, what are you tuning into to try to really figure this out? And just to jump in on that, China just announced a big chop, you know, big drop in the subsidies they're going to pay for electric cars. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a shakeout over or in China because there's a lot of car makers and I think they want to probably want to get some stability in the industry. So I think you really got to figure out uh, what are the drivers? So is there charging? What's the range? What's the cost? Uh, what are the mega city rules, all the things we talked about earlier to find out what the demand is. What we do is we don't really look at what we think the consumer demand is going to be. We'll look at what uh, do the car companies have to do in their fleet to meet the, the legislation. Because right now I believe this is legislation driven, mm -hmm. largely. Mm -hmm. yep. Eventually it'll be cost competitive. But you, you also get more efficiency in, in um, internal combustion engines. And quite frankly, high, uh, diesels are a very good solution. People don't like it, but they're a very good solution for the environment. So you got to see what happens and you know, things go back and forth. Uh, so we'll look at what do they have to do to meet the legislation, what's the volume going to be, and at what point in time does it tip over so that it's actually going to be more cost effective for an EV than an internal combustion engine. And that may drive consumer choice. Not many people are going to say, I'm going to drive an electric vehicle because I want to be um, environmentally clean. And in fact, in places where you don't have Green energy, having an electric vehicle, in my opinion, well to wheel, is actually worse for the global warming. You have a coal-fired grid. Yeah, so yeah. you know that's that's a separate discussion. But I think at the end of the day, uh, ground up, and then we'll just have to make our best guess as to uh, what happens with costs. But we also know what the what the customers are doing as far as their future vehicle design. So that tells us pretty well whether they're you know what what their volumes are liable to be. So it, it's 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 difficult, but that's our. Can I just quickly follow? I mean, so what are customers telling you with the, with the, their future vehicle plans? I mean, are they telling you that yes, they believe there's going to be a significant growth, or are they hedging their bets and being more conservative? Well, I think all, a, a lot of companies believe that electric vehicles are going to be more cost competitive and be more market uh, acceptance in, in the future. Uh, in the future, not being 15 years, it's probably you know, starting now, and but it really depends on the penetration rate. And, but we also have to use our own judgment because, quite frankly, if I was a customer, I'd say, please quote that job. I'm going to make a million of them, so please give me a, a really low, this is one of your cups, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Give me a million of those. Yeah, divide so, by a million. Yeah, so I'm going I'm to be really tight on amortizing my capital, my engineering, my R&D, uh, 
and if they only produce 250,000, then we're on the hook. So it's not just magnets. It's all, all the big intelligent tier ones will do the same analysis. And, uh, but I, it, is, it is coming. Everybody said it was coming seven or eight years ago at the car shows. You walked around, you think the whole world is going to be electric. I actually, at the same time at Traverse City, I said, here's what I think is really going to happen. And pretty well for the numbers we still are saying. And we said, no, no, you're going to look, look, these are all the announcements. But I do think we're at the point now where it's becoming competitive and we will see the penetration rates. So what's your outlook, near-term outlook for the industry? And what's your biggest fear for what could actually derail it? I think most people think this year is going to be okay, but um, what's your biggest concern that could, could throw things off? Well, if you had a major event, which nobody can predict, uh, I don't think uh, gasoline prices are going to rocket uh, anytime soon. Um, we have had a long cycle, so our view is relatively, relatively flat, maybe down a little bit in North America. Uh, Europe, probably relatively flat, maybe up a little bit. China's going through some bumpy times, but our view overall is we, it's an industry that continues to grow. I read reports about you're going to have shared mobility and it's going to drop off. I think they're crazy. Um, you know, I, I actually think you can have more vehicles on the road because you're having all these new vehicles take away from public transit. So if you look at all the, uh, all the dynamics, I don't think you get, it's not easy to predict over a six-month period, but I do think uh, we're going to continue to see this as a very healthy industry. I think the, there's a lot of change in dynamics. There may be some new players in the future. I think you're going to see more cooperation and consolidation. Uh, so barring something that is really unusual, as long as you don't have these massive swings, like we had in 08 and 09, that was very, very difficult to get through. But the customer's balance sheets are better now. I don't think anybody's like trying to reduce prices to pull forward vehicles. I think the supply industry is in much healthier shape. You don't have people going to go bankrupt because people have just been more careful. So I, you know, I think it's a relatively, relatively stable industry. But you could go up and down in short term, and. The, one, the way we, we prepare for it, quite frankly, is we've worked really hard in the past 10 years on what we call world-class manufacturing. I firmly believe if we keep really motivated, happy people and culture, and you're really competitive, and you don't have any waste, and we track it globally, we share best practices, and you're really good at what you're doing, then we're going to get the business. And that's, you say, we, we keep on growing people. How do you keep on growing? Say, you, you, just, you just, you have to be competitive, and have the right technology, and you're going to get the business. And that's the perfect way to end up the show. We're running out of time here, Don, but I could go on for another hour. But thanks so much for coming on AutoLine this week. Yeah, really pleasure. appreciate you. your insights into the industry. Okay. Drew Winner, Joe White, want to thank you both, too. Yeah. And, of course, as I always do, want to thank all of you for having tuned in.